Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, good morning again. Uh, as I said at the beginning, but in case you missed it, I'm Ben, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection. And if you were going to custom design a Bible passage to touch on as many controversial subjects between men and women as possible, I'm not sure you could do better than 1 Peter 3, 1-7 through 7, that I just read for us. For in these verses, Peter discusses men's and women's roles in marriage, submission, marriages between Christians and non-Christians, what women should or shouldn't wear, how women should refer to their husbands, differences between men and women, and more. Sounds like a good time. Uh, we're going to get into it, I promise. We're going to get into all of it. But before we do, let me give you sort of a wide framework for how, uh, how I approach and how I think it would be wise to approach difficult or controversial passages like this one. Understand this. The God of the Scriptures is always going to confront you in some area. See, there's not a person on earth, not a person historically, who at one time or another has not been bothered by something they've read. They've read it and they're like, what in the world is going on with this? And what I would actually encourage you to do is to view this as a positive. If you read something in the Bible that's either beyond your comprehension or, or if it offends you, it means at the very least that you are being intellectually honest with the scriptures. If, on the other hand, God never offends you, never pushes you, if he never says or does anything that you kind of are like, you know, confused or offended by, then I think it's probably not God you are finding in the scriptures, but only yourself. So if while, if while I had read that, you were confused or perplexed or bothered, I think that's a healthy place to begin because it means you're going to God on his terms, not on yours. And add to that the, this idea that in many places, many times in history, many places in our world today, this text is not controversial. And simply because modern Canadians are offended by a text does not mean that either everyone is or even the majority is. We, ought, we do well to remember we belong to the sort of this wide congregation of believers and be, be kind of humble about our place in it. Now... More than just about every area of Christian thought, I think the roles of men and women inside of marriage is plagued with a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to spend most of my time talking about husbands and wives by means of what I'm going to call negative definitions. I'm going to spend a lot of my time deconstructing false ideas we have about men's and women's roles, about marriage, so that hopefully what we're left with is what's helpful and good and true. 
And I will do, do some of the positives, I promise. And one more final caveat. Just about everyone I know, including myself, feels some degree of guilt, shame, disappointment, or inexperience with marriage. I, I've almost yet to talk to a person who feels like, I've arrived, I've done it, I have the perfect marriage, you know, I have nothing more to learn. So, so listen, it's my job to stand at the front and explain this is what God is saying about marriage, but please understand that I do so with a lot of trepidation, even fear, because <laughs> I know how far I have to go in this area, but this is what I'm called to do, this is what, this is what Peter's talking about next, so we're going to jump in together. I've got three parts. First, what submission is not and is, and what set part two will be what considerate leadership is not and is, and then part three will be Christ the Savior of husbands and wives. Well, today, today's sermon is what one of the moms from Moms Group called an old-fashioned Presbyterian sermon, which means, you know, like, what does that mean? It means I got points and subpoints and subpoints of points, um, and so I'm going to begin right now with eight things submission is not, eight things submission is not. And if you miss, actually, if you missed last week and you don't know what we mean when we say submission, what I mean when I say that is some sort of blend of deference and honor and respect and obedience. So, some blend of those things, not, not all of them all together. It doesn't always look the same, but if you were here last week or listened to the sermon, uh, Peter talked about sub- submitting to governments, Christians submitting to governments, servants submitting to masters, and now he's using the same word to talk about wives and husbands. That's why our text opens with that word, likewise. He's taught this general principle of submission. He's applying it to all these different kinds of situations. And also that likewise hints that the example of Jesus is at work in marriage the exact same way it was at work in how Christians submit to governments and servants to masters, but we'll, we'll cover that more at the end. Also remember, Peter is interested in pastoring people where they are at. Remember his concern with servants? He's not trying to take down the whole institution, uh, though that he kind of plants some seeds for that. He's saying, if you have a harsh or cruel master right now, here's how you should live. In the same way, I think Peter is speaking to husbands and wives as he finds them. But anyways, eight things submission is not. The first thing submission is not, it is not about all women submitting to all men. If you look carefully, Peter addresses wives only, And he addresses wives only in the context of their own husbands, not men in general. And you should understand, there is no general principle in the scriptures that demands individual women have to go around submitting to sort of random men. that's, That's not a thing from the scriptures. If you are an unmarried woman today... The only submission that concerns you is, first of all, to Christ, of course, but, but, but to the government, uh, as all Christians do, we talked about last, last week, potentially to your parents, depending on how old you are, and to the elders of the church. Those are the only places that the Bible says submission is required of you. If you are a married woman, the only one to add to that list is to your own husband, not to husbands in general, just to your own. And I say this because some Christian churches have, have made it a thing that happens between women and men in general. That men in, the, in some churches go around demanding submissive behavior of random women. That, that's just simply not a scriptural thing, a principle. Churches that practice sort of a general submission of women to men, that has more in common with a, a patriarchal society than, than the scriptures. Submission is not all women submitting to all men. Secondly, submission does not mean wives give up independent thought. If you look at verse 1, the main situation Peter is writing into is a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man. That was highly unusual in Roman culture. It was actually normally assumed if you were a wife, you would take up or you would, you would have the same religion as your husband. 
And so a mixed marriage where, where a wife believed in, in, in one God and a husband believed in something different, that, w- that was quite unusual. But as Christianity spread, this began to happen. And, um, and, and so a, a wife would be believing in Christ while her husband wouldn't. Another thing is that we have a number of examples of Roman household codes, which is sort of what kind of Peter's writing. Uh, it, it was a format familiar where philosophers would give their take and say, this is how husbands should be and wives and children and slaves. They, they would write these rules. But if you go ever read the, like the non-Christian ones that, you know, Plato or whoever wrote, it, it was usually only the people with power who were addressed. Basically, the patriarch, the very head of the family, and perhaps other males in the household. It's extremely rare in non-Christian literature to give direct instruction to women or children and, and slaves or servants. Yet here and in many other places, that's exactly what the New Testament does. It gives these people specific instruction, and by doing so, it dignifies them. It dignifies slaves and servants by telling them, this is what God wants from you in, in, in your household. And, and Paul, and when, he, when he speaks to children, he dignifies them. He says, this is what it means for you to live like a Christian. And right here, we understand that Peter expects wives will think differently than their husbands. Sometimes dramatically, they'll believe in a different God than their husband, or they'll believe in Christ and their husband won't. But of course, it can be less dramatic as well. Simply, husbands and wives don't have to agree on every point. Wives should be thinking for themselves. They should be coming to their own conclusions. A wedding band on the finger does not mean that a wife gives up independent thought. And some Christian churches have taught more of a drone-like existence for women. Oh, just do whatever your husband tells you to do. That's not a biblical idea. Paul and Paul thinks women should think for themselves. They should hold independent opinions, and in some cases, hold independent beliefs from their husbands. Okay, number three. Submission does not mean a wife should refrain from trying to influence or persuade her husband. So he goes on to say, if you're, an, if you're a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man, she should try to persuade him of the truth of the gospel. And he writes, some husbands will be one, that is, converted to Christ by their wives. See, so wives aren't just kind of holding their own opinions and I'm never going to speak about it. No, he says, at times they can be persuading and influencing their husbands. Sometimes that happens without words, that's what he says here, just by example. These husbands are changed by the mere behavior of their wives. But of course it can also happen with words. Words aren't banned, words aren't forbidden. But wives, as they obey God, as they follow Jesus, are free to persuade and influence, contribute to the family. Again, some Christians have insisted that submissive wives should keep their noses out of their husbands' decisions. The Bible just doesn't talk like that. There's no verse that says, well, the husband gets to decide whatever the school the kids go to without any input from the wife. That's just not a thing that's in the Bible. And indeed, I would actually argue that in many cases, a wise husband would defer to his wife who probably has a better understanding of lots of different areas of life together. Now, it depends on many factors, which we'll kind of get into, but Peter expects wives will try to influence their husbands, particularly if the wife is a believer and the husband isn't. Now, there's one more thing to say kind of on this point, especially about women, Christian women married to non-Christian men. I think this teaching that sometimes non-Christian husbands will be won over by the examples of their Christian wives Though I think Peter means it to be encouraging, I think it can end up being discouraging. Because some, inevitably, some, women, sorry, some men won't be won over. And of course, if you're a Christian man married to a non-Christian woman, some wives won't be won over. And I would encourage you, if you're in that situation, this is not something to feel guilty about. It isn't that you've, you've failed somehow uh, as, as a wife or that your example hasn't been good enough. I can assure you that's not the case. 
Peter's giving you something to hope for, to pray for, not something that is going to condemn you. Number four, submission does not mean that a wife gives in to every demand of her husband. This is similar to what I just said, but I think it's important to highlight each wife is to submit to God first and her husband second. Every case of submission in 1 Peter, uh, Peter says, no, God's first, he's the most important, he's Lord of the conscience, and Christians are free, uh, are, are free not to submit in cases of conflict between God and the person or the institution that they are submitting to. So when we kind of take that principle and we apply it to marriage, we understand every husband, even the very best husband, will sin or will err at times. And a wife's primary allegiance must be to God and not to her husband. If the husband makes sinful demands of her, she's not obliged to obey them. If the husband tries to involve her in his own sin, she doesn't have to go along. If the husband is abusive, she doesn't need to stay. And and, and perhaps even when it's not clear sin, but the husband's just being kind of a fool or acting unwisely or unhealthily, a wife does not need to give in to all these kinds of demands. She should be walking with God, walking in wisdom on her own. Fifth, submission is not a matter of intelligence or competence. You know, the Bible never comes out and says, as far as I know, why it calls wives to submit to husbands. There's plenty of reasons that are speculated, but they don't often answer that why question. But we know it cannot be. It cannot be because women are less intelligent or less competent than men. This passage and every other, it it, it never calls into, into question their intelligence. And in fact, this passage would say, oh, women sometimes have more insight into spiritual matters than their husbands. But submission is not due to some kind of inherent weakness. Sixth, submission is not a personality trait. I think some women, some wives have read this passage, and in verse 4, they see there that Peter commends a gentle and quiet spirit, and they wonder to themselves, what if I'm loud and forceful? (laughs) What, what 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 if I feel like I'm the opposite of gentle and quiet? What if I'm not this way? Well, you should know, the main person in Scripture who's commended for having a gentle and quiet spirit is... Jesus, Jesus himself, he's the one who said, like, he's the main person that we use this descriptor for. He actually describes himself in such a way. So what we're aiming for here is nothing less than the character and disposition of Jesus. But more than that, gentleness is widely misunderstood. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and it can be kind of best, like, defined as as some sort of humility or self-forgetfulness. Gentleness is not about being kind of soft It's about the ability to to channel strength, channel abilities to their proper ends of serving other people. And so what Peter's saying here, he's saying, do you want to know what makes a woman or a wife beautiful? It isn't the jewelry, it isn't the fine clothes, it's the makeup. That's all those references to external adornment. It's like those things, whatever, they're fine, but they fade quickly. What makes a woman beautiful, Peter is saying, is understanding how to use her strength to the proper ends. When a woman knows when to speak, when to be quiet, when to act, when to be still, when to comfort, when to push back. That's beautiful. And when a woman humbly contributes, just like Jesus, that's good and right. So if you're a wife today and you're like, I don't feel very gentle, I don't feel very quiet, I don't have quiet, this quietness of spirit, let me assure you, these, aren't, these things aren't personality traits, but they're gifts of the spirit so that you can use who you are well. I think women of all personality types can fit into, can obey verse 4. Seventh, submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. See, opponents of submission, people are saying, oh, it doesn't really, shouldn't really work this way. They'll appeal to passages like Galatians 3, where Paul says, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. 
But at the same time, the Paul who wrote Galatians 3 and, and Peter who understood Galatians 3 better than any of us can at the same time believe that and issue different kinds of commands to slaves and free people, to husbands and to wives. See, the free gift of grace um, in, that, in Christ does not negate differences between slaves and free people or men and women. What Galatians 3 is doing, Paul is, is just leveling the ground at the foot of the cross, saying, no matter who you are, no matter what your status is in the outside world, you are free to come sort of into the church and partake of Christ. So Peter can, in one breath, tell wives to submit to their husbands, and at the same time, tell the husbands, if you look in verse 7, your wife is, an, is a co-heir with you of the grace of life. You are inheriting the promises of God together. Yet that equality, that spiritual equality, does not mean equivalence of role. And in every New Testament passage where wives and husbands are addressed, different commands are given to them. And there are some passages, like in Ephesians 5, where where Paul begins by saying, telling all the Christians, you should all submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. At the same time, husbands are never explicitly commanded to submit to their wives. Masters are never commanded to submit to their slaves. You can believe in spiritual equality, yet also believe the, the, the roles are differentiated. Submission does not negate equality we have before God. And eighth and finally, they think submission is not, it does not look the same in every marriage. If you look at verse 7, Peter instructs the husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And the Greek literally means live with them according to knowledge. Which means, if you're a husband, you must know your wife. You know her well enough to live with her. We're not discussing principles of women in general. We're talking about you and your wife. And if we go back to verse 1, the command was for wives to submit to each to their own husband. And submission to one husband will probably look different than submission to another. Each couple will have a different arrangement of skills and gifts and, and aptitudes and desires. And I think a wise couple would, should not just like read one marriage book and like, well, in this book, the husbands do the yard work. So I guess that's like the biblical thing to do is for husbands to, to mow grass or something. No, no. What they should do is they should think about their life, their skills, their abilities, and figure out how do we arrange life together. And it'll change over time. There will be seasons, like when you're married without kids, or if the Lord gives you children, when the kids are little, or when you're empty nesters, or when she is in school and he's working, or or whatever goes on, it'll change over time. And decision-making will look different in different marriages. Work arrangements, child-rearing, household maintenance, conflict resolution, like et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. But the main thing, I think, that preachers and teachers, like myself, need to avoid is a kind of one-size-fits-all arrangement. I think it's pretty tempting for someone like me to think, well, this is how, how it works in my marriage where we are with my wife, so therefore, this is how it should work for everyone. And now I'm going to write a book, and it's very prescriptive about how wives should let husbands, you know, watch more Raptors games or whatever. But like, that, that's my problem. That's not your problem. Your marriage might not have an issue with, with Raptors games. Submission does not look the same in every marriage. The principle is the same. The application is different. So those are my eight points. Those are all things submission is not. Now, what is it? I got two points for this. What does Peter offer as a positive instruction? He says, first, submission looks like Sarah. See, Peter's used all these words to describe uh, the behavior of wives. Submission, respectful, pure, inner adornment, gentleness, quietness of spirit. And we kind of come to this point and we're like, Peter, we need a picture. <laughs> I, need, I need someone to look at. What does this mean sort of in real life, like with flesh and, blo- flesh and bone? 
So Peter tells them we should just think about Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Now, we studied Abraham not too long ago, if you've been at our church for a year or so. I don't know. I've lost all sense of time. We did it at one point. And, and you may remember from that sermon series, like Sarah had some rough spots. She's, not, she's not, not a perfect wife by any means. She messed up. She disbelieved. She laughed at the promises of God. Yet Peter says she submitted to Abraham well. She spoke of him respectfully. She did good. She didn't fear. Now, look, does having Sarah as an example mean that you need to call your husband Lord? No, and the answer is no. That's what Abraham, that's what that culture found respectful. What you need to do is find a way to respect and honor your own husband in your own culture. If you're a wife, you're not married to Abraham. Therefore, you don't, you know, your marriage doesn't need to look the same as Sarah's. Peter says she's an example to follow, not something to, to mimic in every way. But the second thing submission is, is that submission is part of Christian marriage. And very simply this, Submission is commanded of Christian wives, and so as a, if you're a Christian wife, you must wrestle with this idea that authority and leadership in marriage are not, is not entirely mutual. And the Bible doesn't get into a lot of specifics. What, what, what it means, what it looks like, I'm not always sure, but the principle is there. And just like some of us have an issue submitting to governments, I know that a lot of wives really wrestle with this. And look, if it's a big struggle for you, that's okay. That's a place to begin. There are a lot of older, wiser, long-married women around who would be glad to talk to you about it, but I would encourage you, it's not something to be ignored or shrugged off as something that doesn't apply anymore, because I think it does. That was our first section, what submission is not and is. We'll we'll move quicker through the other ones, because as you can see, we've used up most of the passage already, but what considerate leadership is not and is. Peter gave wives six verses, husbands only one. I'm not sure why. I feel like husbands, we need at least six of our own. But I just have two things to say about what considerate leadership is not. First, it's not harsh or domineering. So Peter tells tells the husbands, you should live with your wife in an understanding way. We already talked about that. According to knowledge. This means when a husband treats his wife in a demeaning way or in a domineering way in his leadership, he's disobeying what this verse teaches. How can harshness ever be understanding? Or how can insults, how can underhanded comments ever show honor? They can't. Instead, this verse says that husbands should be greatly esteeming and respecting their wives and what they bring to the family. There should be appreciation, should be cherishing of a wife. There should be work on a husband's part to allow the wife to, to flourish, to get into the best possible position to use her gifts. There'll be an understanding that our marriage is unique and we need wisdom to live in the best way possible. You know, in the course of research for this sermon, I went down some weird holes of the internet, but I encountered a a few truly awful examples of how husbands treat their wives in the name of being a leader in their household. There are stories of men banning their wives from using the dishwasher because she loaded it in a way he didn't like. Or men insulting their wives or or disciplining them like children. And listen, and they use these verses to defend themselves. And that's not right. That's not what they mean. Such behavior, it's not congruent with this passage. You can't be harsh or domineering if you're a Christian husband. If you treat your wife in such a way, you are not acting like a Christian. And secondly... Considerate leadership is not to be physically or socially imposing. So Peter tells the husbands, I know you've been waiting for this one, to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. I'm like, well, what does he mean by that? Well, commentators 
there's long internet arguments about this. Well, what does it mean for a wife to be a weaker vessel? But I'll give you the two things I think it means. And, but look, there's a lot of answers, so if you disagree with me, you know, not offended. But first of all, women were much weaker socially than men, particularly in Roman culture. Far fewer freedoms, far fewer opportunities. They depended on their husbands or on other male relatives far more than a woman would today. And if a woman were divorced, if a woman were abandoned, if a woman were sort of turned out on her own because the husband was, was mad at her, that was essentially a sentence of perpetual poverty, destitution, or worse. So in many ways, a woman was far weaker socially, culturally, than a man. But this also might be a reference to physical strength. That in general, wives are not as big or as strong as their husbands. Now, it's not always the case. It's just a general principle. In fact, recently I met a young man who was in ministry, and he married a woman who is a champion wrestler. She was on Canada's national team as a wrestler. So, of course, my first question is, like, can she pin you? Can, like, you know, is she stronger than you? And, and he's like, yeah, she can. Um, this man, it's not, he's not sinning. That, that championship wrestler woman does not need to marry a, a championship wrestler man or whatever. The man is not sinning because his wife is stronger than him. But in general, the principle holds that men uh, tend to be larger and stronger than their wives. And we know, historically and statistically, some men use their strength or their size to abuse or to intimidate their wives. So what Peter is telling the men is, don't use any of your advantages to impose things on your wives. Don't physically intimidate them. And worse, don't actually hit them or push them around. And don't threaten them with being thrown out of the household where they'll be in great distress. Don't use whatever power or privilege or strength or whatever you have to hurt or to threaten your wives. That's not what it means to be a considerate leader. You should acknowledge, rather, he says, that they are, they are co-heirs, they're co-inheritors of the grace of life. And in fact, Peter warns the husbands, if they are harsh, domineering, abusive, he says it's going to hinder your spiritual life. See that last line? slightly terrifying. He says, your prayers will be hindered. God's not going to listen to you, <laughs> you're, or you're not going to be able to pray. We don't know exactly what it means. You'll, you'll be tripped up. There are these serious spiritual consequences. That's what considerate leadership is not. What, it, what is it? Very quickly, considerate leadership is an acknowledgement that if you are a husband, you are to offer leadership in your marriage and family. And just like with submission... Maybe you need to have an honest conversation with your wife. Maybe you need to have an honest conversation with some good friends, a trusted older man. But husbands, Christian husbands, you're, to be, you're called to considerate leadership of your wife and family. Let's talk about part three. Christ, the Savior of husbands and wives and everyone else. If you look carefully, Jesus is never mentioned in this passage. There are a couple of references to God kind of in passing, but nothing terribly explicit. Yet I don't think you can obey this passage, you can live it out without understanding what Christ has done. And here's why. Here's what happens in every marriage over time. And if you're single, by the way, this is important to sort of tune in for, because if you do get married, this might help with expectations. In every marriage at some point, you look at what's commanded of you, either as a husband or as a wife, and conclude, I can't do this anymore. The person to whom I am married is too hard to love, too hard to submit to, too confusing or difficult to be understanding with. This happens to wives where they wonder to themselves, how can I submit to this man? He's selfish. He's emotionally dead. He doesn't work hard. He yells too much. He's not a Christian. 
And what a wife is saying is the, the, the emotional, the spiritual bank account has run dry. There aren't enough resources there to make a withdrawal. And it happens to husbands. And they wonder to themselves, how can I lead this woman to whom I am married? She's hard to live with and she criticizes me and we have different interests or whatever. And what a husband means is the emotional and spiritual bank account has run dry. There aren't enough resources to make a withdrawal. See, when it comes to money, you can only be generous if you have some in the account. And in a similar way, you can only afford to be generous to your spouse when the bank account is topped up. But here's the problem. If, if all the love and affirmation and identity, if it only comes from your spouse, then when they fail you, and they will fail you, there won't be anything left to draw from. And there'll be a day you'll wake up and you'll go to the, the ATM of marriage and there'll be insufficient funds and you'll wonder, how do I go on in this marriage? And it happens to everyone eventually. But if you know something of the way the Holy Spirit works, then you can understand that you must tap into the riches of Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for you. If you can understand that Christ did not demand his own way, but submitted to the Father on your behalf, if you can believe that that Christ gave himself in love for people who had betrayed him and turned on him, then it changes everything. We can say with Peter from the end of chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. See, listen to me. The power for a resilient marriage, the strength to submit or the strength to lead, it ultimately can't come from your spouse, but must come from Christ. Do I want you to grow in your ability to submit to your husband or to lovingly lead your wife? Sure, absolutely, no question. But long-term growth in those areas demands that you know and walk with the crucified and resurrected Christ. It demands it. And there's enough at the cross to forgive all the sins of your marriage and to give you the power for a transformed life. And by the way, if you aren't married, this is the secret for all other kinds of relationships as well. The stuff you need to go on being kind or loving and generous, when those things aren't returned to you, it's only found in Christ. And in Jesus is the affirmation and the love, the identity to carry you when all human love fails. So my prayer for you is you'd know this Christ and that he would change you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Thank you that you have sought fit to instruct us in how we ought to live together, especially those who are married. And Lord, your commands feel hard. Give us extra grace today to believe them, to to believe in Christ, to love him. May you pour the resources, the love of Christ himself into our hearts that it may overflow into whatever relationships each of us has. And in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.